You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Appreciate how those songs work together. I don't know if you noticed, but the first song says, Lord, I need you. And certainly that's true for all of us. We need Christ every minute, all the time. But we need a God who is so great. And it's, it's wonderful that we need a God so much and that our God is so great and he fills all of our needs. Um, pastor said a few things about my master's degree. <laughs> and he set me up for a failure, I think. <laughs> um, but I do really appreciate our church and the love that I've felt from you already. Um, and there's just every time that, that our family goes through some type of even small changes in our life, it's always a reminder of how good our church family is. You know, I have a good family, good church family. God has blessed um, me abundantly. And so thank you for that. Um, we went on vacation, kind of combined that with the graduation service. And my brother-in-law was graduating as well. And I feel like when you come back from vacation, you're preaching, it's mandatory that you tell some type of vacation story. And so I asked Tara this afternoon, I said, Tara, you've got to begin with some type of story um, that's funny. And so can you tell me a story? She, she started listing off a bunch of different stories. And it was like, can't tell that one. <laughs> no. Um, nobody wants to hear how Spencer took off all his clothes, ran out on the dock to meet our guests, which we've never met before. <laughs> or how Spencer somehow left the house by himself and went over to the golf course and stole the tee blocks <laughs> and brought them back into our garage. And we're like, what are these? <laughs> so um, Spencer actually provided many of the stories. Um, but it was also funny that, uh, that Avery decided to get in on the conversation, and so she told us a story about how her and Miles were swimming with my brother-in-law and his friend, and they almost drowned. <laughs> it's a story I didn't hear about until this afternoon. And so, anyways, um, I did think about one thing that I think has some type of spiritual application, and it happened on our graduation day. And so for our graduation day, you, you're going to Liberty University, and there's... 40 or 50,000 people trying to pile into this one small stadium and then breaking up into different groups for their individual ceremonies. Just, just chaos, so many cars, so few parking spaces. We ended up being the vehicle, out of all the vehicles that parked about a kilometer or over a kilometer away from where we had to be. And so with four kids, it's a, it's a long hike trying to get them all, especially when you're just racing for time. And so we, we made the walk in there. And then when we had to leave... We got our stuff. Everybody else was parked just right close by, and so they got in their cars and left. And we started walking toward our car, and it just started to spit a little bit. We're like, ah, oh, no big deal, a little bit. Like, this, this is fun. And then all of a sudden, it, like, the clouds, the sky gets dark. You know, it's like, it's ominous. And then it just, the heavens open up, and it starts pouring. And then they have these loudspeakers come on through the entire campus that says, Warning, this is not a drill. There's been severe storm warnings coming through this area. Please get in a building immediately. <laughs> so, so we still have like a half a kilometer to go, and I'm carrying Landon and Spencer. My arms already feel like they're falling off. And so I, I'm like running to our car to try and get into it. So we finally get, get to our car. We are soaked, like thoroughly wet, as wet as you can be. We get in our car, and then I say, Tara, pass me the phone. The phone is our, our GPS for the trip. It's our only way of getting anywhere. And she says, it's in the bag. Where's the bag? Oh, it's on Sam and Justin's stroller. (laughs) 
oh great. So now we're in the middle of this chaos of 50,000 people. You can't go anywhere quickly. Like every road is, it's packed completely. And we have no idea which highway we're supposed to get on. No idea which direction we're supposed to go. And we have to travel 45 minutes. And it's one of those journeys where you start on a highway and then you move to a smaller road and the roads keep getting smaller and, and more and more windy and more and more up and down until you're, like, you're in somebody's driveway trying to find your, your own driveway. And, and so um, we had no idea what we were going to do and we were lost for quite a while and we were wet much longer than we should have been and very hungry. We thought about eating the kids. <laughs> we decided on Spencer because he's meatiest, but <laughs> didn't come to that, thankfully. Um, but I, I, when I was thinking about that, I thought, uh, just like many times, I think we take, we take that GPS for granted, right? Like, I get in the car, I have no worries about where we're going to go until all of a sudden I don't have a GPS. I don't have something to tell me where I'm supposed to go. And I think oftentimes that's true for our lives, that we take God's word for granted. God's word tells us who we are. It tells us who God is. It tells us what this life is about. It tells us about eternity and how we're supposed to live this life according to the guy who created the whole thing. We have so much in the Word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light into our path. We take it for granted, and we don't realize how lost we would be without it. And so I encourage you to love it and get into it. And, and the only hope that I have of giving you anything tonight that is worthwhile hearing is if it's from the Word of God. Josh Moody said this. He said, you cannot have too much of the Bible in the same way you can't have too much sunlight in midwinter or rain in the desert or love letters from your beloved. For that is what the Bible is. The love letter from our beloved. So this evening I'm thankful for the word of God. Um, we're going to be beginning our fourth lesson in the Galatians series. The title of the series is Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ. And that's one of those things, you come up with a title of the series and then nobody ever knows it. And that's, that's okay, but that's what the title is. And I, I say that tonight because the title comes from the third verse of Galatians chapter 2. And we'll be, we'll be covering Galatians Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 this evening. And here we'll see Paul continuing to defend the gospel. And he's defending that, that the gospel is a gospel that is marked by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Faith in what Christ accomplished on the cross plus nothing. That is what the true gospel is. And so that is what he's defending. And that's what's under attack at this time in the churches of Galatia. And so let's pray and then we'll get into our study. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that we can trust it. I thank you that it speaks truth to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would use it to convict our hearts tonight, Lord, to uh, impassion us about the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would see the zeal that Paul had for it, his willingness to defend it, his willingness to die for it. And, and Lord, we would be um, moved to be more like him and to see the gospel for how valuable and how awesome it is and then to live for it. We love you, Father, and I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he died in my place. I pray in your name, amen. So thus far in the letter, we've established that Paul is, is very adamantly, passionately, zealously defending the gospel. He's defending that the authority of his message is from God, that it's not from men. And that's how he begins. And then when he defines the gospel, he defines it very briefly as Jesus coming to, from God to rescue sinners by the will of God and for the glory of God. And that's that what the gospel is. That Jesus, the Son of God, came from God. He died for sinners. He died to rescue sinners as their only hope of eternal life because of the will of God, because that was God's plan, that is God's will, and for the glory of God. 
And then he continues to say that anyone who preaches any other gospel than that one, let him be anathema. Let him be eternally cursed. Very strong language. He even says, includes himself in that, if, if I come and I preach to you anything other than that gospel, let me be cursed. Then he gives his personal testimony. And he starts telling them how he was such this, this zealous Jew that he was all about the law. In fact, he was so adamant about keeping the law that he was willing to kill other people in the name of the law, even though killing other people was against the law. And, and, and as, as irrational as that sounds, Paul rationalized it in his zeal for the law. And so here we have a man who is, he's just passionate about the law. And then we see his conversion. We see him come to Christ. And now he's zealous about the gospel. And he's trying to tell them that, listen, the gospel did not come to me by man. It wasn't like I went to the apostles and they taught me everything I know. This was God directly revealing it to me. And that's important because one of the criticisms of Paul was that, hey, listen, he was taught the gospel by the, by the apostles, by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and the people that were coming to attack the gospel were coming, saying they were coming from that church. And so they're saying, hey, listen, Paul was taught by these same men that we were taught by. Paul got parts of the gospel wrong. He was kind of softening the gospel a little bit. He was making it palatable for you. But this is the true gospel. And so he's trying to, to correct them. And so Paul is, is just defending his apostleship, defending the authority of the gospel based on the fact that it came from God directly. And in our passage today, it seems like Paul is answering another charge. And that is the charge that the apostles actually preach a different gospel. And so he begins here tonight by explaining that, that the gospel is the same gospel that he's been preaching, that they preach. And he's going to show us how this entire situation, this entire problem has already been dealt with. So he's going to tell that story. So rather than jumping right into Galatians, what I want to do tonight is I want to start in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. And if you know about the Jerusalem Council, that is where the leaders of the church, the apostles in the church of Jerusalem, they come together and they decide whether Gentiles can be saved with the law or apart from the law. Do Gentiles need to become Jews to be saved? Now, to you, this might seem, well, there's a council, something that, a meeting that happened 2,000 years ago. What, has, what does that have to do with me today now? Well, can I tell you that the result of that council has everything to do with you today now? Because that council was deciding whether Gentiles, you and I, could be saved apart from the law of the Jews. And that's, that's incredibly relevant for us. And so what... what the problem that comes up in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, that makes the counsel necessary is that it says, a cert And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and the elders about this question. And so you see here the problem is that there are people that are coming to the church of Antioch, which is a primarily Gentile church, and they're saying, unless you be circumcised, you cannot be saved. To these Gentiles who think they're saved, this is awful, terrible news. You mean I can't be saved unless I go get circumcised? You mean I can't be saved unless I keep the law of Moses, unless I become a Jew? I thought that was already taken care of. And so there's this huge fight within the church, so much so that they decide to send people to Jerusalem to figure it out. And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 4, it says, And when they were come to Jerusalem, 
they were received of the church and of the apostles and of the elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This is exactly the problem that Paul is dealing with when he writes the letter to the churches of Galatia. These same Pharisees, these same Jews who called themselves Christians were now going around the world trying to manipulate everything that Paul had done, everything that, that the gospel had accomplished. And this is how Satan works. Satan generally doesn't attack the church from outside. Now, it, do, it certainly does happen. We understand that there are outward attacks. But the most dangerous attacks on the church throughout history have been internal. They've been attacks on doctrine and specifically attacks on the gospel. And what he's doing here is he's saying, oh yes, the gospel is good. Oh yes, you need Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus. And then when you do that, just keep the law of Moses. Just do these, do A, B, C, and D. And when you do those things, you are absolutely saved. You're a Christian. I mean, it doesn't sound that bad to us, right? Because you need Jesus, and we say that. And then, and then, oh, you just have to be a pretty good person. You have to keep some of the law. And the law was given by God, so what's the big deal? Well, it is a very big deal. And so that's why Paul is fighting it. And, and so we find out, it, when we read Acts chapter 15, that the end of the Jerusalem council is that they decide, and James kind of speaks for all of them, that they're not going to trouble the Gentiles any longer. The Gentiles can be saved apart from the law of Moses. They can be saved by faith in Christ. So that was good news. And I tell you that story because many people believe, and I believe, that Paul is recounting the same story here in Galatians chapter 2. So in Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, it says this, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. This is the first time we hear about Titus going to the council as well. In Luke, Luke does not record that detail. Some people think that Luke was maybe brothers with Titus, and so he didn't want to include Titus just because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. But for whatever reason, Luke doesn't record it, but here we find out that Titus went. Now Titus, as we read the epistles, we find out he was a convert of Paul's, and he was a wonderful minister of the gospel. Paul discipled him, he trained him, and then later on in his life, Paul counted on Titus to go straighten out the church of Corinth, to, to deliver letters to them. He counted on, on him to set up other churches and, and um, start the leadership there and get all of that under control. He, Titus was a wonderful man. But what Paul is doing here is he's bringing Titus, because Titus is a Gentile. Verse 2 says this, And I went up by revelation. So God, God told me I should go up and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. When we first read this verse, it's kind of an, a strange verse. I don't know if it strikes you that way, but it strikes me that way. We get that Paul went up to Revelation, by Revelation, God told him to go. We get that his purpose was to communicate the gospel, Right? Obviously, that's why he's going. He wants to say, this is what I've been telling the Gentiles. And we see that he goes privately to them which are of reputation. And what he's saying there is that I, I, I went to those people who, who the church saw as leadership. I went to James and John and Peter. Whoever the church decided was the leadership of the church, I went privately to them. So he had this private meeting. But the weird part is when he says why it seems like he went privately. He says, 
lest any means I should run or had run in vain. Paul, are you saying that you were worried that maybe you had been running in vain? Are you saying that maybe you were worried that you got it wrong and so you wanted to meet privately with them so that you weren't you know, publicly humiliated? I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. In fact, I'm sure he's not saying that because think about what he's been saying this entire letter so far. He begins the letter with, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He says, I am an apostle straight from God. God made it that way. And then he gives his whole argument, and his, his argument is based on the fact that everything he's heard about the gospel has come directly from God. That it's not coming from these men. So why would he now say that he's going to Jerusalem and he's worried that they're going to correct him and that he's wrong, that he's running in vain? That, that doesn't really make sense. I think the best way to make sense of this is to say he's worried that if he goes to Jerusalem and, and he, they publicly have this discussion, it could tear the church apart. And it could make all of the fruit that Paul had accumulated there in Jerusalem and, and even more so abroad, it could make that, that fruit go away. It could, it could ruin it. Because if the church of Jerusalem falls on the wrong side of this matter, which Paul knows to be true. He, he knows the gospel. He, he was given it from God. But if the church gets this wrong, then they're going to publicly disgrace Paul. And they're going to send messengers to all the churches he started to say, hey, listen, Paul has got this wrong. And it's going it's to ruin everything. And so Paul wants to meet with them privately so he can make sure that this turns out right. And, and if for some reason it doesn't, he can still at least get away without being a, a public problem. And so that's, that seems to be what's going on here in verse 2. Verse 3 says this, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Here he's saying kind of the gist of what they decided in that short meeting. They decided that Titus, who was a Greek, did not need to be circumcised. It seems like a weird detail to throw in there, I mean for us. But when we think of what he's saying, he's saying that Titus, who was a Gentile, does not have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. That Titus is already saved. And so what he's demonstrating here to the Galatian church is that the leaders of the church of Jerusalem have decided that Titus is saved apart from circumcision, apart from the law of Moses. This is a big, big deal because that's what this whole discussion is about. And so Paul has demonstrated that the message is from God, but now he's demonstrating that this message is from God and that all the apostles, the leadership of the church of Jerusalem, that they agree. This is important. Verse number four says, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage. This is the reason for all of this commotion. This is the reason for the letter. There are people who have come into the churches of Galatia to spy out the liberty that they have in Christ. Hey, this, this, is, this is espionage in the first century. That there are people that are creeping in, pretending to be Christians, looking just like them, acting just like them, and everybody around them thinks that they are Christians. But their goal is to thwart the gospel and to bring the law back into place. Hey, they're, they're secretly trying to change the doctrine of the church. And the truth is, I'm not sure that they all knew that they were doing this. I think some of them thought that they were Christians and that, that you had to keep the law of Moses. Just as, this is how it is. But what Paul is describing is this evil 
underlying thing that's going on in the church where they're trying to just change the message of the gospel, the core thing. And he says they're trying to thwart the gospel. And then at the end, he says that they might bring us into bondage. It's amazing that Paul's whole problem here is that they're using the law for something that was not meant to be used for. This is really important that we get this. Okay? Who gave us the law? God, Jesus. Okay, okay, we got the law from God. So the law is good or bad? Well, the law is good. So if the law is good and it's from God, why would Paul have a problem with people trying to force the law on people and saying that somehow that is bringing them into bondage? It's because they miss, they miss the purpose of the law. The law is not a tool that will help anybody get saved. The law is a diagnostic tool. Tara had an MRI a couple weeks ago. And they, so they do this, this MRI, they do this test just to check on some things, and the, the hope is that they don't find anything wrong. But if they do find something wrong, it doesn't matter how many MRIs they do, all the MRI ever does is reveal that there's a problem. Okay, now, they didn't find anything wrong, thank God for that, but that's all the MRI can do. That's all a diagnostic tool can do. And that's all the law does. God, God is perfect and he's holy and he's just. And so he gives us the law and it demonstrates how perfect and holy and just he is. It, we see his character in the law. But what it does for us is it shows us that we are so far short of that. It diagnoses us. We have a problem. We're sinners. We fall short. And it doesn't matter how many times I try and beat the law into you, the law is never going to make you anything other than a sinner. That's not the purpose of it. And so when you take somebody who has now been saved by grace through faith and now you just try and beat them and beat them and beat them back into submission to the law for the wrong reason to attain their salvation, every time they look at it, they're going to, again, they're short. They fall short. And there's guilt and there's shame. Because you can't do it. Because I can't do it. Because none of us can do that. And so the problem here with the law is that it's being used for the wrong reason. And it's being used in a way that is, that is putting people back into the bondage they were saved from. Verse number five says this. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul says this was our reaction to this. This attack, which I don't know about you, but this is, this is a big, a big problem. This is hitting at the core of what Christianity is. What is Christianity? In a nutshell, Christianity is the gospel. Christianity is unique from every other religion because it says you are saved by faith through the grace of God and nothing you merit, nothing you do. Every other religion in the world says differently. And so this is trying to put Christianity in the category of every other religion. And he says this was our response to it. We did not give them an inch. We would not let them speak. We stopped that teaching as soon and as fast as we possibly could because we wanted the truth of the gospel to go with you. But these people are already saved, right? And he calls them brothers. Yeah, that's because the gospel's a lot more for just, it's for a lot more than just saving people. The purpose of the gospel is, is not just for unchristians to be saved. The purpose of the gospel is for Christians to be transformed. And so he wants them, he knows that the solution to their problem of being fleshly, being unholy, being whatever they are, is not more law. It's more grace. It's more gospel. It's more truth of the gospel that's, that can transform and change anybody. 
And so he tells them, we didn't give them an inch. We didn't give them any place, no, not for a minute. So we read this, and we get a, a glimpse of some of the problems that Paul experienced. And I want to give you a couple applications before we close. The first one is this. The gospel is worth fighting for. When I was studying this, do you know what was interesting about this passage? Verses 3 to 5. If, if Paul was taking 5th fifth, fifth grade Greek, he probably failed the class based on his Greek grammar in those verses. And I'm, I'm not telling you that to tell you that Paul was not... Like, Paul is brilliant. And, and when he wrote the book of Romans and when he wrote the book of Ephesians, he sat down and he wrote this brilliant, brilliant letter that it just covers so much. And, and he has a purpose in all of this. But when he wrote down here, he was passionate. You know when you're like in, a, in an argument with somebody and you're just so passionate that maybe you don't take all the time to make sure your sentence makes complete sense. You just know what you want to get across and you do it. And that's how Paul writes here. He's passionate. So much so that, that sometimes you're like, I, I don't, okay, I, I know what you're saying, Paul, but I don't know why you said it that way. The gospel is worth fighting for. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote, Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things wherewith one may edify another. Paul says, whenever possible, let's, let's follow after things that make for peace. Let's live peaceably with all men, if it's possible. And this is an area where it is not possible to do that. You cannot have a brother and sister in Christ change the gospel and live peaceably with them. You can't have a church like that. Our church is a, is a terrible, wicked, awful church if we have 15,000 people coming and, and people disagree about the gospel. We've accomplished nothing. What we need to do is have a church that loves the gospel, is unified in the gospel, and that, if anything else, if we have everything else different, if we have different preferences and different convictions in other areas, that's fine. But we've got to be unified on the gospel. That is the most essential thing. The gospel is worth fighting for. Can I be honest with you? I think that the church today is known for fighting over stupid things. We fight over the dumbest things. Preferences, uh, convictions, programs, buildings, toilet paper, color of the carpet. I mean, we fight over the dumbest, dumbest things. And far too often we fight to be right, to make ourselves look good, rather than fight because we believe this is something that God wants us to fight for. The gospel is something that God wants you to fight for. And the gospel, we can be clear when we're at work, when we're with unbelievers. This, that is the thing that we're sure of. That is the thing that we know is true. That's the thing that we need to stand firm on. Paul was against dumb fights. He was. Paul was not a troublemaker all the time. But when somebody attacked the gospel, he was willing to stand up and say, shut your mouth. Okay? That, that's not happening in this church. That's not happening here. Stop it. We need to be like that too. Do you know that we look at the word of God and we see two things happen um, with regard to, to Titus and what it said about Titus here. We see in this case, Titus is not circumcised, okay, and that's, that's the end of it. And then in Acts chapter 16, Timothy is circumcised for the sake of the gospel. And the question is, what's going on here? Is Paul using a double standard? And the answer is no. The answer is the gospel is the most important thing. And so in one case, to show the truth of the gospel, 
it was necessary for Titus not to be circumcised. And, and in one case, to make sure that nothing got in the way of the gospel, nothing hindered the gospel, Timothy needed to be circumcised. Now, Timothy was a half-Jew, and so it was, it was important. It, it would have provided a roadblock if he went into Jews and he wasn't circumcised. And so all of it was done for the sake of the gospel. That really should characterize our lives. If you have, if you have one thing worth dying for, you have a reason to live. That's it. The gospel. That's what's worth dying for. And that's what we live for. That's what you fight for. That's what you stand firm on. That's what is the most important thing in your life. And if it's not, you're missing, you're missing what Christianity is about. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 3 to 5, Paul can barely string together a cohesive sentence because he is so passionately opposed to what is going on because the gospel is at stake. We should find a way in our lives, in our hearts, to develop some of the same passion that Paul had for it. First thing is, we must be willing to fight for the gospel. The second thing is this. As we look at this text, I see, think we see an essential underlying message. And that is that the gospel makes us free. The gospel makes us free. How do you live as a Christian? You live freely. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you're free from duty. Hey, duty, duty is upon us all. Pastor read verses this morning that talked about the fact that our lives should be marked by doing the things that are, that are helpful, that are good, that are edifying. Just because it's lawful for you doesn't mean it edifies. just doesn't mean it's expedient. Just because it's not expedient. So, so there are some things that we might be lawful to do, but they're not expedient. What does that mean? Our freedom is, it doesn't remove all duty. It doesn't mean that we don't have a duty to do what's expedient, what's best, what furthers the gospel. But it does mean we have a freedom from guilt. It does mean we have a freedom from self-loathing. Yes, I know we all have past. I know we all have evil thoughts. I know we all have sin in our past. What the gospel does is it makes us free from those things. Because it's not you that saved you. It's not you that made you clean. It's Jesus. It makes us free from worthlessness. Where do you get your worth? How do you establish what makes you an important person? If you do it in your own strength, it will fail you will be disappointed because everybody else's opinion of you will decide what you are and how valuable you are and what you're worth. If it's based on your looks, on your talent, on your ability, there will always be people that are better looking, that are more talented, that are younger, that are whatever else than you. The only place that we ought to look for our worth, our value, is in the gospel. It's the cross. How do you know how valuable you are? God came down and died for you. That's it. That's enough. Free from worthlessness. And I think it also makes us free from being self-promoting. Because at the cross, we're all sinners. At the cross, we're, we're all the ones contributing to Jesus dying, dying there. And so it, it helps us realize who we are. It makes us free from punishment free from uncertainty, free from vanity, free from the bondage of sin. The gospel makes us free. And as we look at this passage, as we look at the book of Galatians, it's all about Christian freedom. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't make you free from duty. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to use your freedom for something good. You are. You're supposed to use your freedom to further the gospel. Okay? And, and so we do what we do because of the gospel, because God is so good to us. But it makes us free to 
experience and love and adore God like we're created to do. Finally, the gospel is enough to save and to transform. The gospel is enough to save and to transform. And that is why it's worth fighting for. That's why it provides freedom. Paul brings the churches of Galatia the gospel. And the gospel says that the law demonstrates your sinfulness. The law shows you you're a sinner. That all men are justly condemned in their sin. The gospel says that Christ died for sinners. And the gospel says that repentance and faith in the death of Christ will save you. That's, that's what the gospel says. It's enough to save you. And the Jews say, okay, you can have the gospel, but if you give people all that grace, they're just going to do whatever they want. They're just going to live however they want to live. And some people do. I mean, look at the Corinthians. Some of them, they didn't get it. But Paul doesn't say, okay, you're right. I, I, you know, I know the church of Corinth is having troubles. Maybe we should try the law thing for a while. Paul goes back to the gospel because the gospel is only, the only thing that can actually transform them. Here is the call of the gospel on the life of the believer. The call of the gospel, as pastor said this morning, is that you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, you must glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. You don't, you don't get all that in the law, but you do get it in the gospel. Because at the gospel, you see Jesus dying for you as a sinner. And so you, you see his blood being shed to buy you back. The gospel says that now you should live for his glory because you are his. It exposes the nature of our sin. So we, living in this life, we might look at the law and say, man, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short. I may as well not even try because I'm just so short of that. And then the gospel comes in and says, look at your sin, put Christ on the cross. Now you're saved, you've been justified, you've been made righteous, but do you really want to continue in the thing that put Jesus on the cross? No, it exposes the nature and the wickedness of our sin. It teaches us about sacrifice for others. We see Jesus dying for us. We learn what it means to sacrifice for each other. It calls believers to live like they are and not like they were. It says we should go and live for more than tomorrow. We look at the gospel. We, we see that we now have a home in heaven, eternity. We say, yeah, I can, I can suffer today. I can suffer a little bit tomorrow. If I have to suffer for the sake of the gospel, it's okay. It's a good thing because I live for eternity. We live for the one thing that is worth dying for. The gospel changes you. It transforms you. And only it can do that. If you want a relationship with God, you need to look to the cross. If you want to grow deeper in that relationship and become more like Christ, you need to look to the cross. It's all in the gospel. Paul took the gospel seriously. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just a little thing for him. It wasn't something that he came to church and heard on Sunday. It wasn't like a, a small aspect of his, of his life. It was his life. It was what he lived for. He was willing to defend it. He was willing to share it. That is the calling on all of our lives. Our church should be marked by gospel unity and the gospel unity that Paul is fighting for here. As individuals, our lives should be marked by a passion and a zeal the same way Paul's is. A passion and a zeal for the gospel. Only the gospel can make you free. Only the gospel can save you. Only the gospel can transform you. So the gospel is worth fighting for. Let's pray.